Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try, explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's on! Hi, everyone. From New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Dr. Phil with 100% Better Advice. Just kidding. This is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Naima Raza. Yeah, we would give 1,000% better advice than Dr. Phil. Anyone would. He's kind of an idiot. My number one piece of advice is don't go on the show, Dr. Phil. Yeah. Oprah has wrought a lot of things that I'm not happy about, but that's okay. On the whole, she's been a positive for the society, but Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz, it's really... Vision boards. She brought vision boards. I like that. I like that. She and I got into a little set to about that because I didn't know what it was once. I met her twice in my life, and one time we argued about vision boards. Blakeney's asking what's on your vision board. Nothing. I think they're ridiculous, but whatever it takes people to get th- to do things, that's great. Okay. Well, it's the holidays. Are you taking any holidays? I got yelled at by your son the other day because you're not taking any holidays. I know. They all yelled at me last night. Why? Because they never take any time off. And yet here you are working. We're going next week on a vacation. I promise not to do any work from there. None. Okay. Yeah, yeah I can we'll do a see. week. I don't like vacation. I'm not a vacation lady. Anymore. You and Jerry Seinfeld, I went to his show the other day and he was talking about how he doesn't like vacation. He's like, vacation is just when you pay to fight in a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I like them okay. I just, I like being in a nice place working. Um, uh, I just, I'm not a vacationer. I'm just not. That's the way it is. But my kids are correct. My kids are right. I'm I'm, it's a very bad thing that I do. Anyhow, I don't get it, but that's my advice is don't follow my behavior. Okay. So anyway. Okay. Well, that's great. Right before we launch into an entire episode of advice, Kara, you really know how to sell it. Yes. Um, Okay. We're going to dive right into our gift to the people, which is our advice. It might sound like black coal in your stocking, but hey, it's signed by us. So yeah. Listeners have sent in questions on everything from career to dating to family to whether you should buy a house, which I am perfectly unqualified to answer. I am very qualified for that. I've owned many homes in my life. And I live very well, and I think I've done very well with the career and the kids and the houses. And so you don't have to listen to me at all, but I think I give pretty good advice. Yeah, you give the unsolicited advice. I get a lot of unsolicited (laughs) advice from you. Thanks, Kara. I didn't ask. No, most people call and ask me. People are very respectful of my stellar career. Look at me swimming and advice. All right. So our first question is about dating advice. The question was sent by Alana from Texas, and she's responding to something you said when we were discussing the terrible right-wing dating platform. What was it called? Right Stuff. Right Stuff. Peter Thiel had backed it. Let's hear her question. I wanted to chime in on the Right Stuff dating conversation. I agree that dating people who disagree with you can be a great way to learn about the world, step out of your echo chamber, hear new points of view. But as someone who finds myself in this type of opposing relationship a lot, intimate work otherwise, I beseech your advice on when to choose to draw a line and when to remove yourself from the relationship and realign with your own morals and principles. I've never used a dating service, so I think I feel like you need to take this one. Yes, I shall. I think if someone is so opposed to you that you find that they are against your morals and principles, probably it would be hard to be in a respectful long-term relationship with them early on. So I would say probably it's like, it's like um, career advice. You know, you hire slowly and fire fast. But I think that you, you know, you're looking in anything when you're collaborating with someone in a professional relationship, whether you're thinking that you might build a family with someone, if someone is really opposed to your core morals and values, that's probably not going to be an effective partnership. 
One of the problems I have with dating apps is that you think that you can meet somebody sitting on your couch on a Friday night, swiping, and that you know what you want. So you have all these parameters, like they should be this tall and they should believe in this and they should have this level of education um, and they should live within this many miles radius of me. And I think that that puts blinders on you, Mm -hmm. actually. You don't allow yourself to be surprised and to confront someone who might disagree with you on one thing, but might be right for you on everything else. I think you have to get along with someone most and most, you have to be aligned on a lot of things. Because if you spend a lot of time arguing, I mean, I know it's cute in the movies when they have like a Republican and Democratic, you know, operative fall in love, but you have to sort of be aligned. And when it shifts, like I went out some many years ago, many, Mm -hmm. many years ago, and she started to get into... uh, uh, marathon running and all kinds of things that I just was not interested <laughs> in. It was weird. And uh, she, she cut her hair um, and it was sort of like, wow, you've changed a lot. Yeah. Like, And it wasn't just political. It was just point of view of changing. Oh, yeah. So It's like when people start talking to me, guys start talking to me about their home renovations. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you got oh the wrong God. lady. Well, I would, I'll meet them. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. All right, Kara. Our next question was sent via Twitter from Life of Brian Dean. I'll read it. What advice would you give broadly on having, quote, the conversation with a partner who is skeptical about kids? Asking for a friend, of hmm. course. Hmm. Oh, you know what? I broke up with someone over that. Someone who didn't want to have kids. Yeah, I can't, you can't convince, look, I think it's a perfectly good choice. You know, mm-hmm. I, it wasn't my choice. And, you know, as I talked about my onesie, I just wanted to have kids forever. And so I really was in love with this person, but they really didn't want to have kids. Are there lesbians who don't want to have kids? There are. There are. And I got it. I got it. I had so much respect for this person. And it just was um, just, I, it was so different. And that is a fundamental thing is mm. the ability to have kids. And so I I don't know what how to, you can't sit around and convince them because if they're not along with the the ride and don't want to do it, it's really hard. I would talk to them about what it means to you. Yeah. Um, but you cannot convince someone who doesn't have kids to have kids. It's a really big mistake. What about people who are on the fence about having kids? Well, a lot of people are. I've had some friends who were like, I didn't want to have kids and now that I have them, I love them. Who, someone just said that to me. I think it was Mike Birbiglia was, who we just interviewed, was actually he in the new one. He didn't want to have kids initially. Oh, yeah. And he talked about it in the play too. Um, that's different. That's But that's, that's a, lot, a big burden because I've had a guy say that to me like, oh, I don't have kids, but I'd have kids with you. I'm like, that's a lot of pressure. Oh, yeah. Then you'll get all have to do all the work. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think it's if it's if it's just I don't know, it's different than I don't want to have kids and do not you have to break up if someone doesn't want to have kids because you will yeah. it will be bad and you will be giving up something that's important to you. I agree with that. I think that's good dating advice overall, which is that it's good to have awareness and a vision for what you want in your life mm-hmm. and to remember and to have the confidence to say, I can have that life. I don't, yes. you know, and, and to figure out how to get yourself to that yes. life. Because the yes. last thing you want is to wake up resigned at 45 thinking, you know, mm-hmm. where's the life I wanted? Yeah. Oh, speaking of kids, I can hear yours in the background. <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. Okay. <laughs> hold on. Go, go do that. We'll take a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big ROAS man. Then he just kept saying things like, the bigger the ROAS, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means calculating a return on ad spend. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the ROAS man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash media to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash media. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? 
That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you've made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. All right. So moving on, now we have some questions on family advice, now that we've had the baby in that last question. <laughs> okay. Tom from Montreal has a parenting question inspired by an unlikely antihero. Let's play the clip. I have a question for you about uh, Andrew Tate. I have three sons who are 19, 21, and 23, and they just eat up everything that Andrew Tate says, all this misogynistic stuff. Uh, among other things, he says that women should clean up after their boyfriends uh, when they uh, come to their boyfriend's place. Uh, it'd really be nice if you comment on Andrew Tate and, uh, <laughs> and his influence on the social lives of, of young men. Uh, i really like to hear your input. All right. Thanks so much. All right. So now, first of all, please tell people who Andrew Tate is for anyone who may not know. I, I will. But oddly enough, I just was watching Andrew Tate with my 20-year-old lad two what? nights ago. Yes, I'll tell you why. Okay. okay. The, he's a former professional kickboxer and social media sensation banned from Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube earlier this year. Elon invited him back, though, right, at some point to Twitter? He did. Yes. So... um Here's the thing. My sons watch him and they, they had a lively discussion about him. They're very aware of him. They think sometimes he's funny, but they all think he's an idiot. And so I did watch with them. Um, and it was about bottled water versus flat water. And it was funny. Was he misogynistic and talking about bottled versus tap water or no? No, he was talking about rich versus poor and rich people mm. have stronger than water. It was funny. It was funny. It was, there's no way it was, I could see the appeal. And he's, he has a delivery that he does. I try to look at a lot of these things, you know, okay, why is it appealing rather than being instantly offended by it? Although mm. much of what he says is highly offensive. Um, but what is the appeal and stuff? And so he brings you in with some funny things like the bottled water mm -hmm. take, and it's very, it's, it's funny and kind of in your face, and he's got a really interesting delivery. And then he moves you to the nasty shit. Yeah, this is a form of, I, as you're mm -hmm. describing this, I'm thinking of the YouTube algorithm, like the, about, I'm just thinking about algorithms and how they can radicalize you. Like, of course they get you in through something funny, and then they encourage you to believe it's cool to be misogynistic. Right, exactly. And so, but but I have to tell you, both my sons were onto it. They're like, we think it's misogynistic, think it's bullshit. Um, but they, they saw what he was doing very clearly. One of the things that I was surprised, because I hadn't really watched a lot of him, honestly, um, mm -hmm. was how appealing he is. I could see that. But what's your advice to not make your sons assholes? Because I think that's what the question is. Less about Andrew Tate and advice for how to how to grow men who are not assholes. Media literacy. Let them watch it Let and then talk about it. I, they need to see it. They need to see it and come to their own conclusion and then give them the background and history and stuff like that. But keeping it away from them is the biggest mistake. It just is because they'll seek it out, whatever it happens to be. And so I let them watch everything or most things, and we talked about it. We often, and we had a great discussion about Andrew Tate last two nights ago. Great discussion, and it was great. And, but I didn't need to teach them; they understood what he was doing. Okay, we have another family question. This question is about parenting, and it's from Tracy in Seattle. Let's hear it. I am approaching sixty, as you just turned sixty, and I also had children at an at an older age. I had a child at 50, so I'm currently parenting a very boisterous eight-year-old. And my question is really about sometimes the existential dread I feel at the thought of dying and leaving a young child without his mother. I'm in good health, but I guess my question is, how do I get over myself and just enjoy parenting this wonderful child? Um, and then as he grows older, how do I prepare him for the fact that he will be spending most of his life without his parents than with his parents. So I guess kind of the conversations that you will begin to have with your youngest children um, and what you think about all of that, having children at an older age. Anyway, I love your show. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. That's a yeah. really interesting question. I just was thinking about this last night. It's so funny. Yeah. Um, we were talking about um, having kids. Louis was joking about it. And 
I will meet his kids, right? Because mm-hmm. it's 10, 15 years, probably, you know, within the next 10, 15 years. Louis, within the next five Not, minutes. In the next <laughs> five minutes, right? I know. He's like ready to be a dad. <laughs> he is. My son wants to be a housewife, he says. So, oh, cool. Uh, he does. House husband. No, he said housewife. Oh, he said housewife. Oh. Yeah. He wants to have the garden, run, raise the kids, et cetera. So. Mm-hmm. I know he does. Um, so, um, I, I thought about it and I thought, I, oh, I actually won't meet Saul's children like, yeah. you know what I mean? I really won't. If I am around, I'll be super friggin' old and he has to have them very young. You better get to the Stanford Longevity Center, yeah. like STAT. I know. It just occurred to me. And, you know, Amanda sort of got it when I, they're like, oh, you like Saul's kids. And I'm like, I, I won't meet them. I won't, no. You know, and it was mm. kind of a, like a moment and she got it and I got it. It was really, a, I, I was sort of like, oh my God, it's really true. You have this many years, you know, good years left and this and that. So I, I, I hadn't really thought of it, which is why I can do this because I don't think about it at all because I'm totally <laughs> thoughtless about my life. Um, so just enjoy yourself and just not think about, you know, you're not going to, I had, I lost a parent at a young age. Mm. He was only 35 when he died, 34. And uh, no one thought he was going to die then. So I think you don't know when you're going to die or when you're going to do things. But I do think a lot that my younger kids will not, have their parent have they'll have Amanda around, uh, so that'll be good. But they won't have me around. But then they can talk about me, so that's great. Yeah, and remember me lovingly. I guess I don't know. What about you? Get to having kids, Naima. What are you gonna do? <laughs> Your dad 50, uh, was fifty when you were born, correct? Yeah, yeah, he was uh, just about fifty. And he recently died. He did. He died last year. Um, thanks for reminding me, Kara. I'd forgotten. I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no. Uh, I, I, the question that stuck with me when she said, how do I prepare him for the fact that he will be spending most of his life without his parents? Um, I don't think you can prepare a kid for that. I mean, you obviously lost your dad way too young, mm-hmm. age five. Um, I think it's very hard to prepare. My dad, I, I, he did try, as we called it, parenting by mortality. He was like telling me all the time, like, I never thought I'd be here when you, when you did X. Um, I think it's be present get one-on-one time with them. Like, I had a lot of one-on-one time with my dad when I was growing up. I'd go with him on business trips sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. Um, he was really present in my life, and and I appreciated that. He also let me be free, and he, when he was dying, you know, the last, um, the last probably decade of his life was quite hard. Like, his decline was quite, you know, he wasn't able to do things, and his world just became smaller and smaller. You spent a lot of time with him, though. You sp- I did. I would go every few weeks. You know, my sisters did more. They my, they moved. We all moved back to the States, and my sisters um, moved in, actually, to the home for some part of it. I didn't do that. My dad always said, you know, it's a team sport, and there has to be one person who's out having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, that was And you, coming right? back and telling me about it. Yeah. yeah. And, and he also, he said, he was like, you know, you didn't see me at my mother's deathbed when she was dying. I was mm-hmm. living life. You have to live your life. You know, he never, never made me feel guilty. Um, and he surrounded me. One thing I really appreciate is that he surrounded me with other adults from a young age. I mean, they're, you know, a real community of people mm-hmm. who could give me counsel and wisdom. And his two best friends, you know, I think of them as second dads. So I'm very grateful yeah. to have all those people around because, yeah, you're never really prepared for it and you miss yeah. your parents very much when they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that's the way it's going to be for them, but I'd rather have the time I have with them and yeah. uh, and I will haunt them. That's my plan. <laughs> you're going to have more? Are you going to have more? No. Someone just asked me that. I was like, are you crazy? No. Never. No more. I've had enough. I've done my job. Um, okay. This next one is not so much about parenting as it is about being a kid in a tough spot. So this is from Twitter. And Rebecca asked this question. She says, I've had to recently cut ties with my homophobic parents. It has made me feel extremely relieved, but also a bit guilty. Kara, how did you go about your relationship with your mother while she was trying to accept things? (laughs) She didn't try very hard, but um, it was hard. Let me just say, I, I think you should cut ties when it gets really bad. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I didn't talk to my mom for almost a year. Uh, after she was really terrible about me being gay. So uh, I think cutting ties is not a bad thing and maybe checking in, um, which is what I did. It's It remains difficult. It remains difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, that she, um, I don't know if she was trying to accept things, is that I wouldn't not accept it otherwise. Um, I think one of the things I used to always say is you don't negotiate with terrorists, and that includes parents who treat gay children badly. And if they didn't treat me equally, I would leave. I would leave. Can you tell the story of coming out to 
your mom to left Oh, it's a long, long one. How old were you? What? In my 20s, you know, I had been gay forever. And um, I always thought if she asked me directly, I would tell her, right? And I just didn't want to feel like... Mm. At the time, it was a very different world than it was now. It, it was so... It was bad to be gay. It was not bad. It was, was the 80s. It was harder. It wasn't bad. It just was... It co- cost was enormous, including your friends, right? It just was. It, you were much more hidden. There was all kinds of societal issues, work issues that don't exist now. Mm-hmm. And I think AIDS sort of blew everything up. Like, I, I remember thinking, I don't give a fuck anymore. These, this is ridiculous. But yeah. at the time, they really did keep you under a thumb of real shame and and um, and repercussions. And so uh, I always said, if she asked me directly, I would say, so and so one on one of my I think my twenty some birthday and um, she said what are you doing for your birthday and I said I'm going out with this person I was seeing and she goes oh why it's almost like you're dating and I said we are and you know what I mean mm. she was she'd never come out and ask it because she was too too cowardly to do so um, and so I said we are and she lost her fucking mind it was terrible and of course she knew um, and was not kind it was unkind my you know who was kind my grandmother. My grandmother was who's yeah. older and much more like of an old school, old world mentality. And uh, I knew she didn't understand it, but she goes, all I know is I love you. And that was exactly what yeah. you want to hear from someone. And she took a while to understand it, but she asked questions and really was actually was great about it. She was uh, she was funny and and was very lovely. Yeah. Even if she had a problem and didn't tell me, she kept it to herself. My mother did not keep it to herself. So how did you repair that relationship over time? You checked in? Uh, it took a while. Uh, you know, on that topic, it's, it, it went on for years. It didn't yeah. It didn't get better, really, necessarily. It got, it just, I had kids. She was, we had a big fight when I was pregnant because um, they wrote about my pregnancy in the New York Post and she blamed me for it. But, you know, I think having kids, she really is a wonderful grandparent and uh, that made a big difference, I think. And she always comes around. She she said she was never going to come to my wedding and then she ended up there, you know, and, uh, I'll come to the party, I'll come to this. And then eventually she didn't walk me down the aisle though, Walt Mossberg did. Um, and, uh, she shows up. She definitely shows up. She's around a lot. I mean, she's enmeshed with your family now. She could have done it in a a nicer way, but she certainly shows up and, uh, and she tries. And I just think at some point, some people are older people just have lived in a different world where it was much harder and, and it's not going to, changing their worldview is very hard on a lot of things. So anyway. Yes. Is there anything generational that you think you as a parent would have have had to confront that you didn't get? I, it's different. It's such a different world. I can't, I every now and then I get a taste. I remember what it was like to be closeted and it was terrible. And so I always say it's the only thing, if you're Jewish or black and you get anti-Semitic stuff, your parents get it, right? Because they get it themselves. When you're gay, mm. your parents are sometimes your enemy, unfortunately. And, and they're very, mm. you know, dismissive. Listen, I didn't, I just was very firm about, you know, she tried to say, oh, we're never going to talk to you again. And the family just didn't stick together, right, in that regard. Like, everybody no. was very lovely. My brothers were great. Uh, my grandmother, my, my grandmother being great was really important because mm. my relationship was never at risk with her. And so uh, that was great. She was great. Yeah. But it's like, oh, God, why was it so fraught? I don't even understand. It was such a waste of my time and emotion. So anyway. Well, now you're in a much better place. I guess. Yes, I am. Yeah. It still hurts. It still hurts. It still hurts. I remember it to this day. Of course. Anyway, it was unnecessary pain. It was unnecessary pain. Huh. Speaking of pain, maintaining relationships and warding off bullies, let's hear our next question, which is from a friend who hasn't been a guest on this show, but we have interviewed her in the past. Hi, Kara. It's Kathy Griffin. What is your advice for wanting to stay on social media, but in a world where the trolls may always find us forever and in perpetuity? I thought she was going to yell at me and say, give me Jack Dorsey's phone number. I know. Um, or Elon's phone number. You know, Kathy Griffin's a really interesting character because she's very in your face. And on on social media, she is too. She loves social media because it gives her a chance to mix it up. And she's a mix it up comic. Mm-hmm. She's in a lot of points of view and stuff. And I, I, I sometimes I'm like, maybe you shouldn't be on social media because the attacks she gets are just terrible. Like speak, like we, I get mm. people who are rude to me. She gets hate, real hate. When I defended her on the last thing with Elon, 
I, I was shocked uh-huh. by the amount of hatred aimed at me. And it was very different from, I disagree with you, Kara. It was hatred. And it was weird. Uh-huh. I was like, oh my God, she's just a comic. Like, relax. Um, there's so much hatred swirling out there. But you've recently locked down your comments. I have. So you you seem to be changing your mind about the trolls. Because they got nasty. Uh-huh. I, I, I link it directly to Elon. It never happened before. And uh, I after I tweeted about the Colorado shootings, uh, uh, the kind of stuff I was getting uh-huh. was like, astonishingly awful. And mm. then I was like, why do I need this? Now, uh, you know, why do I need this? And I just shut down the comments first for p- limited people who follow me. And then I just made it private for some length of time. I don't know how long. I just don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear their, yeah. they have, they can say free speech all they want, but they don't have access to me, right? Why should they have access to me? And, and it was, and it's hurtful and mean and weird and anonymous. And it's just, I don't really care to hear their point of view. I think they will find you in perpetuity. I don't know. Do you get a lot of attacks? No. My first piece of the Times, I got some terrible stuff, and Sean Hannity and Ben Shapiro shared it, and it was not fun. It was on Fox and Friends. It was not nice, but I was bar- like, you know, I was barely on Twitter. I don't spend don't. a lot of time on social media, and I have a, a timer set on them, actually, the iPhone timer. Hmm. You got to have a thick skin to be in the business, right? You do. But, Kathy, I would, for you, just do your job. Unfortunately, it's hard to do your job because of what happened. Um, so... Yeah. I don't know. But Kathy, you'll win. The trolls won't get one over they, you. They won't, but I, I got to tell you, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry of the crap you get. So We'll take a quick break and we'll be back in a minute. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you've made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. Support for the show comes from the Harvard Business Review. I made a career out of taking to task some of the tech industry's biggest players. And honestly, some of these guys, and they're all guys, really had no clue what they were doing and they could probably have benefited from some of the resources available at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a top source for smart management thinkers. Cultivated by some of the greatest minds in business, the Harvard Business Review is a trove of rigorous insight and best practices. It's more than just the flagship magazine, too. You can find the same level of expertise on hbr.org, and for just $10 a month, a subscription unlocks unlimited access to a variety of resources like hundreds of articles, podcasts, newsletters, case studies, and so much more. I use HBR all the time to look up all kinds of cases, and not just in tech, and also listen to their podcasts, I look at their newsletters, and I really, 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 most of all, like the articles, which have a different perspective that I might have to give me ideas. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, to save 10% off your HBR subscription, go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA. All right. Our question is about career. Comes in from Toronto, Canada. Atavia needs our help with salary negotiations. So let's get Atavia paid. Here's the question. I started a new job back in March of 2022. I didn't really negotiate my salary too hard. I liked what they were offering. It was more than what I was making at the time. I took it. I've been talking to some coworkers of mine. We've been sharing salary information and turns out I'm probably the least paid person on the team. And it's a pretty big team. So we're coming up for a salary review in the next few weeks. And uh, I find it extremely uncomfortable talking about money, but I also want to get paid 
what I'm worth. And I don't know how to strike that balance. I've been taking on a lot of projects and extra things, you know, helping managers and team leads and stuff like that. So I think I'm really putting in a lot of work. I just don't want to come across like that person that thinks, you know, he's such a big deal and then he's not. Oh, man. All right, money bags. I, I am money bags. <laughs> we ate money bags yesterday at the Thai restaurant. Um, you know what? I've been very good about making money and I because I asked for it and I asked for what I'm worth. And so there's a lot going on, Octavia, in this thing saying, I think I'm worth it, but then maybe I don't want to be that person. Let me give you one piece of advice. Be that person. Be that person because you really should know your worth. And I know I'm sounding like uh, Mika Brzezinski there, but it's um, it's really true. What they do is they operate on the fact that you don't know. They keep everything quiet in terms of salaries. And I've been an employer, and I and I could, I could see why you would keep it secret. But what they do take advantage of is that you're uncomfortable talking about money, and you shouldn't be. You just have to get rid of that. I would recommend just figuring out what everybody makes and then asking for that and saying, I know that everyone here makes that, and I would like the same amount, and you're underpaying me by this much. And I want to, and if they don't want to do it right away, which they might not because of the recessionary situation right now, how do we get to that number? Yeah. Um, I'll tell one story. Then Naomi, you can weigh in. Um, Someone offered me less than I made and it was something I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And they did the typical thing where they said, oh, come on, just come down and then you and I can go out for a drink. We'll be friends. And I looked at this person. I said, we're not friends. Give me the fucking money and I'll buy you a drink. Like, no. And women always give in to the, hey, don't be difficult. It was a, hey, don't be difficult ploy. But come on, like, just sign on the dotted line and I'll buy you a drink and I'll make up for the $100,000 less I'm paying you. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, I don't want to be nice. Give me the fucking money. I think I said, give me the fucking money. Did you get the fucking money? Of course I did. Okay. I'm like, I'm, I'm getting the fucking money. Give me the money. Um, so really understand what you're actually worth and that you can do that pretty easily. Yeah, I always think I agree with you. It's like come in armed with information. Mm-hmm. Know your worth. Tell them what you want. I I also think it is such an uncomfortable setting to ask for a raise or compensation. And one of the things I've tried to do is share the discomfort. I ask them questions, put them on the spotlight, Mm -hmm. right? Ask your boss, Mm -hmm. what is the average? You know, ask them. And then when they're like, well, we can't share that information. It's like, well, I've done the homework and this is what I found out. Because, you know, you're trying to shift the power in in a way, right? And you should have other options, like have a sense of what you want and have a sense of what else is out there. Do you, I don't like, and I don't know how you feel, asking, like having another, I never have another job to dangle to get a salary raise. I find that people do that. That's how you get salary raise. That's the only time they actually respond. I think it's about more knowing that you could have other options. I think the worst is staying in a place where you feel you're undervalued. Valued and just mm-hmm. sitting there and waiting it out and becoming part of the toxicity. Right. It's better to leave if you really feel you're not valued, I think. That is true. That is true. All right. Let's jump into the next question, Kara. Okay. The next question comes from Twitter via Leslie Podesta. She's a longtime listener. Actually, uh, I know her a bit. She served on uh, Twitter's Trust and Safety Council until stepping down weeks ago. It was also disbanded, by the way. But today she has a question about helping her kid navigate early career challenges. Let me read it. What advice would you give a person in their mid-20s, save to buy an apartment or get out and travel? My child is torn between wanting to be responsible and wanting to be free. You want to go first? Get the hell out of Dodge and enjoy yourself. (laughs) You know, I worked right away after school. I've worked since then. And my kids are yelling at me right now. I'm continuing to. I'm also a workaholic. But Mm -hmm. get out. Get out. Travel. I encouraged my kid who was 20. He was at college. um, And it was a terrible pandemic disaster his first year at NYU. And he uh-huh. he was the one like, oh, I should be responsible and stay. I was like, get the fuck out of Dodge. And w- he worked, he traveled. He worked for a butcher. He worked for a butcher. He traveled, he went to, with friends. Same thing this year, he's back at college, but he wanted to go travel. And I said, go for it. Always travel. I love to travel, but I think, you know, there's travel, there's like Instagram travel nowadays where people are just bopping around, seeing the world, taking photos. Mm-hmm. And then there's living in a place. I uh, don't see them as actually... You're right. I would say, Leslie, ask your child what they want to do. They might know what they want to do. But um, I would say go live somewhere else, like somewhere you don't speak the language yet, somewhere you don't know the customs, like sit with the discomfort. Mm-hmm. So much of travel these days is about consuming a place and photographing a place. You're right. And I think the actual sitting with the discomfort and living in a place and understanding how people are trying to communicate to you, what reading their body language because you don't understand the words coming out of their mouth. Those are skills that will serve your kid 
for a long, long time. Yeah, I just say get out. I always say get out instead of being responsible. Mm-hmm. And when you go to Stanford here, they're all an achievement wheel, and I don't know where they're going. Like when they get there, what are they going to do? And they will. Yeah. I my mistake. If I haven't made any mistakes, really. You were just about to admit one, Kara. Just lean well, into that. I, if I think about it, I probably should have forced myself to travel a year, like mm-hmm. around the world. I, I, I didn't have that itch though, so I don't know. Maybe it wasn't a mistake. Not too late, Kara. No, I want to go on a girls' just, trip. No. Not even slightly. <laughs> I just want, I want to go to Hawaii and sit on a beach. That would be my biggest thing. I, I will say one thing. I, I, this question was phrased as save to buy an apartment. And I am amongst the millennials who does not own a home. Yeah, oh yeah. we'll get to I, that. I believe we'll that your that. home will come to own you. I don't agree with that in any way whatsoever. Um, I have owned homes since I was in my early 20s. I've always owned a home. I think it's wonderful. I love building homes. Real estate has been good to me because I invested really early mm-hmm. um, with a very small amount of money, actually. And mm-hmm. I love having owning my own home, and I've done it since my early 20s. Remember the Christine Blasey Ford testimony at the Brett Kavanaugh trial? About home owning? I remember about d- casual date rape, but what? what, what? <laughs> that There's... Part. Uh, there was a moment when they when they asked her why it took her so long to remember. Mm-hmm. I think she was she started describing a home renovation project, and I was like, "Oh, I find home renovations are quite boring." So I'm sure you would have been riveted. I love home renovation. Don't I love? I'm just about to do another one. I love. I know you were telling me about yours yesterday. <laughs> and I was feigning interest. Yes, I know, but I love slowly home dying inside. But no. she started speaking about the home renovation, and she she was speaking about the fact that. She needed another door. Do you remember this? So she and her husband had these arguments and they were arguing because she wanted another door in the kitchen. Mm. And he said, why do you want another door? I believe it was in the kitchen. Mm. And that's when she remembered this memory of having to leave that room um, that she described, right? Wow, that's a reason to renovate. (laughs) So I'm saying there's like renovations, pull out your your Uh deep-seated trauma. they don't. They They are so deep. Let me just say, no, I have this house here. It's my house. My kids are so happy to be back here. They were raised here on a door jam as their heights Mm -hmm. when they were little to the big. When they were as small as you, Kara. They love this house and they're very happy here. And I was just thinking the other day, I wonder who's going to live here in 50 years when we're not here. Maybe my kids. Their kids. I don't know. I love it. I love it. Let's move on. Okay, let's move on. Okay, this next one's for you. Hey, Kara. John King from CNN. Thanks for the opportunity. What's your advice for interviewing liars? A question I never imagined I would want to ask until the last few years. In the old days, we left chronic liars on the fringe and largely ignored them. But now, look around. We see chronic liars, conspiracy spinners in positions of major political and corporate power. How would you approach an interview with one of them? Last few years, liars. Who could he be talking about? <laughs> a lot of people, actually. Uh, I love John King. I think he's very genuine. You know what I mean? He really says it like it is, which is really nice. Um, I, I think he he approaches things interestingly. Like, no, this is the numbers. Mm-hmm. Numbers don't lie. And so John King is a very math-oriented person. I'm a surprisingly math-oriented person for someone who hates math. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time with facts. And so uh, when we did the parlor interview, he kept saying things and we, we pushed back. No, yeah. that is not what is true. That is some, you remember we did the some people say? Yeah. Uh, I said, nobody says that. No one who's telling you the truth says that. That's not true. And so I think the, the strongest thing to do with liars is say, that's not true. Yeah. And don't let them get, a, don't let them get any kind of purchase on a some people say or... There are those who do this, say this is not true, or you don't know. You actually don't know. Sometimes it's not clear. And you have to be really prepared then because sometimes they can get one over on you. Yeah. Chris Wallace did a good job with Trump, remember? Yeah, he did. He did. He was very polite too. I thought that was good. You can't get angry at their lies. Yeah, because then the visual reads differently. If you appear defensive or agitated, Mm -hmm. the visual can read with the side of the person who looks more confident, even if they're sitting on a house of lies. Yeah. Um, And then you don't interview big liars. Like, interesting, Piers Morgan and I were discussing... Who you wouldn't interview. Neither of us would interview Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's just a chronic liar. Mm -hmm. And what's the point, right? Would you want us to do it, her? You you might. No. No, you wouldn't. Uh, I mean, would I want you to... Well, I mean, Uh, I think the thing is, once you... I'm like, ooh... But once you fact check it, it gets very slim. Yeah, what do you do? If you don't catch every one of them, you're fucked, essentially. Yeah. Now, look, you paused that. You paused on that Marjorie Taylor Greene. Because I don't think, because I disagree. You know, I remember when um, Ben Smith of Semaphore was going to interview Tucker Carlson, and people were like, Mm -hmm. why are you going to platform? Why are you going to platform? It's like, first of all, these people have a platform. If you think that we're the ones giving them a platform. And two, 
I think asking someone hard questions is yeah. really different to giving them a soapbox. And but there's there's a difference with Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's a chronic, chronic, extensive liar. I think people who are divorced from reality are too dangerous to to engage with in some way. There's also a difference, by the way. I came across somebody at an event who believed that only the right was being censored on social media, believed that the vaccine was utterly ineffective. And I think with those people, you mm-hmm. don't want to bombard them the way you would in someone in power who should know better. It's it's completely possible that someone has gotten a whole host of misinformation. In that case, you might want to ask them. Or they've been manipulated. Yeah, they've been manipulated. And um, in that case, I think you want to ask questions, trying to understand what they believe, and then kind of bring in bring in the facts, encourage them to visit sources. Many, I, I assume people are good for the most part in general. Anyways, let's move on. Okay. The next one's for you, and it's on fashion. Let's hear it. This is a question for the fashion queen, Naima. What are your wardrobe staples for looking chic, approachable, yet slightly bossy in a work setting? I'm a woman in my late 20s, and I'm looking to up my game and would love your advice. Ciao. Naima, I'm glad it's you because I'm completely unqualified to talk about fashion, as you know. By the way, there's a power in your not giving a shit about fashion. Yeah, that's true. You like to tell people you're above the fray. I look fine. Oh, for goodness sake. But go ahead. Go ahead. You do look fine. I wouldn't want to make you feel like you look like you were dressed in a car wash or something. I'm not dirty. Whatever. What, where do you shop? Okay. I really am, couldn't be less interested, but where do you shop? No, come on. This isn't really a question about fashion. This is a question about how you present at work. You really dress up though. You really do. I do. But people want to act that style or fashion is vapid, but it's your way of presenting yourself to the world. It informs how people see you. By the way, it can have an impact on how you get paid or how you get hired. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important investment. And there's all this data that shows that people who are well-groomed, whatever that means, get paid more. Um, people who are more attractive get paid more. But then people who are too attractive get paid less, by the way. It's a diminishing return. All right. So where do you shop? Where do you shop? Where did you find that sheepskin thing you were wearing yesterday? <laughs> I'm still wearing it. It's very cold. This is a vintage Marnie, I think. It's three types of lamb's wool, Kara. Oh, wow. Mongolian sheep wool. Totally uninterested, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I think you should wear what makes you feel good in a work setting. Yes, you do wear what's comfortable for you. That's for sure. What's comfortable and what you feel confident in. Yeah, now I can't wear pants anymore, but go ahead. ahead. You mean hard pants? Hard pants. I can't wear, I'm wearing them right now and I'm very uncomfortable for an event tonight. (laughs) Hard pants for people who do not know are pants that have buttons or zippers versus pants that have elasticized waistbands. Which is my favorite. You like sweatpants. Always. You know what? I think a sweatpant with a cool with a cool t-shirt and a chic leather blazer could be great. Yeah, that's on my list for Christmas. So I would say, you know, go for really simple lines. Leather blazer, white t-shirt, and jeans. A jumpsuit instead of a suit. You should replace black with navy. I think you should always look memorable. Mm. So... If you have a standout thing, like I love wearing prints or statement jewelry or metallics. You get it from everywhere, right? You shop everywhere. I shop everywhere and I pick up stuff that's interesting to me and that's unique. I try not to have something that everybody else has. Mm -hmm. Um, And I try to buy stuff that I would wear a lot because we are in a fast fashion crisis. Mm. And I think for men, by the way, tailored blazers, good investment. Okay. Good investment. All right. Do you want any fashion advice, Carol? I'll give you some right now for free. I really don't. I really don't. (laughs) I really don't. So let's move on to our next question. This is our last career question. It comes from a former guest, Rick Wilson, the co-founder of The Lincoln Project. Hi, Kara. It's Rick Wilson. I had a quick question for you. I was wondering if I had, say, I don't know, $44 billion or so burning a hole in my pocket, and I wanted to buy a social media platform, what would I do to actually improve it and make it a useful thing in the public square rather than burning it to the ground? Thanks so much. Wow, I don't know who he's talking about. Hmm. Um, you know, interestingly, Rick Wilson, who you, you're very good on Twitter, by the way, uh, very yes. funny. Um, I wrote Elon a note. Of, he asked me before we weren't talking about things, and I sent him quite a long note about things I thought were important. And I said, please don't uh, run it yourself, I think. I was like, though he's fully capable and he should have been an important part of it. I thought a professional CEO who understood media was really important. Um, Someone who really got it and he could handle the technical aspects of it. A little like the Google guys with Eric Schmidt when Mm. they did that. Yeah, be the grown up in the room. He took none of my advice. Mm -hmm. He just paid too much. It didn't matter. Once he paid this much, it was kind of, it, it, it was impossible. Is there anything he can do now? No, I think he's really sort of, 
really messed it up quite a bit. Um, I think he should have just declared that, like, this is how I envision a social network, and I'm going to stay consistent to that. And the capriciousness is the problem. Mm. Um, I would have tried to move it away from this is a public square that's going to save humanity. That's kind of his messaging, which I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of hard to do. Um, I wouldn't have been so attacking. Like, I, I would have been quiet, and I would have quietly improved the product very quietly. I would have laid off much slower. I would have absolutely laid off, but not in the way he did it. Um, I wouldn't have made it such a circus. Um, and I would have tried really hard to get investors who had my vision, a long-term vision with me. Um, I see what he was trying to do. He was trying to blow it up to rebuild it, but he just blew it up. That's all he did. And he blew up his money in the process. Now he still might be able to do something with it. You know, these rich people always have an escape hatch. Yeah. But it's not going to work the way he's doing it. Yeah. And it's going to cost him beyond Twitter, Tesla maybe. Yeah. That's been down under $150. Right. It's going to it's gonna come to bite him. I don't know. Some things just have to die. I don't know. At this point, some they all do. Some things just have to die. Well, that's really nice advice, Carol. <laughs> I know, but they do. So Rick asked you for some unsolicited advice for Elon. It seems, you know, name him. But let's do a quick lightning round. I want you to give quick unsolicited advice to each of these people. So first, Mark Zuckerberg. Looking good, Mark. Elon's making you look good. Just keep quiet. Okay. Tim Cook. Everything's going well. You really have to get out of China. Sam Bankman-Fried. Enjoy, Jill. I hear you can trade cigarettes for things. What about VCs who have been back in crypto? Someone like Chris Dixon or Mark Andreessen. Good luck. Enjoy yourself. You're not going to convince us to take your money right now, but, you know, good luck. Andy Jassy, the Amazon CEO. Watch your back. Oh, what does that mean? Watch your back, Andy. I like you very much. Okay. What about Vice President Harris? You've interviewed her before. Yeah. You know her. We haven't heard a lot I from her. I think she should get out there. I think she's a really interesting politician and she lets others define her. I've told her this myself and she needs to define herself much more. Ron DeSantis? Oh, Ron. I don't know. I don't know, Ron. I don't think you're going to be the front runner. I don't think you have the charisma it takes to be president, but uh, maybe. Good luck. Hmm. Unsolicited advice for me, Kara. I don't have any advice for you. Just keep on doing what you're doing. You do an excellent job, as does the entire uh, team here at On. What an amazing group of people, and uh, they make me look good, and and you're all astonishing talents, each and every one of you. I just wanted to get a compliment out of you. That's what it takes. (laughs) All right. So uh, we have a question for you sent in from another former guest, a comedian. Hey, Kara, it's Mike Birbiglia. Uh, Thanks again for having me on the show. And here's my question of advice for you. Because um, you're someone who scrutinizes things very closely and sometimes is uh, uh, cynical or uh, realistic, depending on how how one looks at things. Um, what are you most optimistic about for 2023? And what should one be most optimistic about for 2023? Wow. Um, gosh, I, 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 I'm an optimistic pessimist is what I am. <laughs> There's pessimistic optimists, by the way, uh, and there's optimistic optimists who are stupid and pessimistic pessimists who are stupid. Um, I would say I really do think that people do understand the toxicity of Donald Trump and what that means for America, not just him. It's very easy to focus on one person, about ourselves. And I think a lot of people are maybe pulling back a little bit from the the abyss that they have thrown themselves into with abandon. Um, and I think the same thing with Elon. Everyone's like onto him. Like people are onto people that are really don't have the best interests at heart. Mm. And, I, and I find it mostly in young people. I have to say, I think a lot of older people are sort of steeped in anger and can't get out of it. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Like always in a kind of quandary. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of people, young people, very onto things and very much realistic about their world, whether it's climate, which they're worried about, whether it's consumerism or whether it's uh, what it is. And I feel whenever I talk to young people, including my own kids, I feel really good about the world. I do. I feel like they they get it and they understand the challenges facing this shit we've left them. And so I'm very optimistic about young people. I really am. I think I know everyone says they don't. They voted very well in this last election. The voter, the American voter, was like, enough of this bullshit. You don't have to be on a side to understand most of it is bullshit. Most of it is. So I'm optimistic mm. about um, about that. Yeah. And I do th- I do see some really interesting glimmers. You know, the whole Sam Bankman Frieden, the Elon mess, like it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be in our rearview mirror. I really believe that. So... 
Okay. You think the grifter's not going to grift in 2023? I, I think that's a little grift. bit. That's optimistic, optimistic. No, it's not. Okay. What's your optimist? Stop being a, you know what you are? You are a, you are a <laughs> pessimistic optimist. No, you're an... That's what you said you are. <laughs> no, I'm an optimistic pessimist. Oh, yeah. I'm actually optimistic. I think the world is fucked, but I have great hope. That's how I feel. I'm very optimistic, I have to say. All right. So you're a pessimistic optimist. So what is your optimistic thing? I'm optimistic that there'll be more global camaraderie, more attention to things. I think that we're there's going to be a real pushback on globalization. And economically, that might play out. But I think people, like there's a humanism in the world that I feel people are moved by stories elsewhere. They're looking outside of themselves more. Um, I certainly feel I am, and I think that's yeah, a good thing it is, for the world. It is. I'm optimistic, Mike. Mike, I have four kids. You can't be have four kids and not be optimistic. That's true. He thinks you're a cynic. <laughs> I'm not a cynic. All right, Kara. Very last question, and we're giving it to the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Walt Mossberg. He tweeted asking, how do I open a bakery in Hawaii? Has either of you looked into this? Walt, I have. And I unfortunately feel like I can't now because I have so many children. <laughs> Tell us the story there, your dream of ending up in Hawaii. I wanted to live in Hawaii in like five years. Like I wanted to open a bakery, F&F donuts, fried and fat donuts. I wanted to get real big. And <laughs> I wanted to just live in Hawaii and eat donuts. And this is not going to be happening for Kara Swisher. You'll be chasing Solomon around the house. That's correct. Correct, with a ball, 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 ball. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to start, oh, I love Hawaii. So I haven't yet to get a Hawaii since the pandemic. I love Hawaii. It's my favorite place. And so I will not be opening a bakery in Hawaii as I wanted to. Um, but, you know, a girl can dream. That should be your New Year's resolution. Get the bakery in Hawaii. Never happening. I would be such a good little baker lady. It was so good. I don't know. You'd probably yell at people. You cannot have that donut. No, you're half, half a donut. You can't have two donuts. You know what I would do too if people thought they knew who I was? I'd just like, completely disappear. I had a dream of just disappearing and they'd be like, do you, are, you, do you, you, are you Kara Swisher? I'd be like, no, no, I've never heard of her. That's what I like. Would you like this a is like donut? the plot of Gone Girl or something. What is would this? Would you like a donut? People are always so happy eating a donut. I don't think you would do well disappearing. You're I don't wrong. think you can handle the irrelevance You're for wrong. too long, Kara. I can't do it now, but I, that was my plan. That was my plan. You know, I've been trying to disappear you from the show for <laughs> ages. It's not happening. It's not happening. All right, anyways, thank you for everyone who called in and who listened this year. We'll be back next year with more of the show. I'm going to be thinking about fashion all year. No, I'm not. Not even slightly. <laughs> By the way, the producers are writing in saying they're taking your advice to Atavia, and they all yeah, want to okay. raise. Well, that's, I don't, oh, no. I don't work for me. They work for you. Good <laughs> well, luck. Good luck, Naima. So glad. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, why don't you read us out? Oh, you know what? We're actually going to have producers read their own names. Oh, fantastic. Okay, so let me start. Today's show was produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nushek, Christian Castro Rosell, and Rafaela Seward. Special thanks to Andrea Lopez Cruzado. Our engineers are Rick Kwan and Fernando Ajuda. And our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you get a New Year's Eve disco ball. If not, make a New Year's resolution to buy one. Go wherever you listen to podcasts also and search for On with Kara Swisher and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. By the way, in the spirit of the holidays, we're taking a day off, so you won't hear from us on January 2nd. They say absence makes the heart grow fonder. I doubt that. But anyway, we'll be back next Thursday with a fresh episode.